0: chapter 3. We'll be in 1 Peter 3. We'll be looking uh, at verses actually 1 through 7, but only dealing with verses 1 and 2. So let's uh, look to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll begin. Dear Dearly Father, again, as we come before you, As the song we just sang, that we would be separate and we would be holy, set apart for you, help us understand what that truly means, to be set apart, and what that looks like to live in a world that continually goes against who you are and tries to draw us away from that. Thank you that your word stands as a vast contrast to the way the world thinks. But dearly, Father, help us to be honest with ourselves today, to understand that is, people that live in this culture, that it, its influence on us is great. So, help us to have our eyes fixed on you. That you would take that refining fire that we ask for and burn off those thoughts that are not conformed to the way you want us to think and the way you want us to act. We ask these things in your son's name, we pray. Amen. Now, I grew up in Eastern Pennsylvania. So, if any of you know anything about Eastern Pennsylvania, I grew up in the culture of eastern Pennsylvania. And in eastern Pennsylvania, there were things that I thought were normal. There was food that was given to me that I thought was normal. We ate things like api cake. We ate things like scrapple. We knew what a shoe fly pie was. And we also ate this thing called pork roll. Now, there's some people that say, what in the world are you talking about in any of those things? Because my kids, as I grew up in that eastern Pennsylvania, Introduce them into things like what pork roll is, and most of you have no idea what pork roll is, and I would argue you're missing out greatly. But then when I moved out here to central Wisconsin, um, I honestly did not know that people ate cheese curds. The only time I had heard of curds was when Mrs. Muppet was sitting on her tuffet eating her curds and whey, right? And she only liked them as good enough that when a spider came, what did she do? She ran away. So obviously they were not that thrilling. But as I moved out here, I found out that people actually do eat cheese curds and that the best cheese curds are the ones that supposedly make noise when you eat them. And not only that, of everything that I learned about cheese, in order to have a good cheese curd, you don't refrigerate it, I've been told, which goes in my mind against everything that I've known about dairy. Now the Wisconsin culture has influenced me. We're moving to the point where in roughly three years, I will have lived longer in Wisconsin than I lived in eastern Pennsylvania. And so what is happening now is on Fridays, when I grew up in Pennsylvania on Fridays, you just probably had pizza or something else, but now out here I've learned it's Friday. Well, that's the day we all are supposed to eat fish, right? Like, and not only that is during a certain time from Lent until Easter, you're really supposed to eat fish on Friday and you're actually supposed to go out and find fish to eat on Friday because I guess Friday and fish rhyme together, but it's Friday, right? You eat fish. And not only that, I have learned that there are things called dairy breakfasts, which you're supposed to go to in June. And you're supposed to enjoy the dairy breakfast and have breakfast at a spot that the normal breakfast food, but only you throw milk and ice cream and other things like that that into breakfast and we celebrate it, right? Both of these cultures have influenced me. And we can sit here and almost smile at the way that my growing up in Pennsylvania influenced me. When I came out here, It went way I was like stepping into a unique culture that now has influenced me enough that there are certain things that I go back to Pennsylvania, and it's Friday, and I'm like, well, I don't know why I'm desiring fish right now, but I guess it's just what you do, right? <laughs> but it's interesting, though. The text we're about ready to talk about is going to talk about this same concept because... Just like growing up in Pennsylvania, my eyes were open to a certain culture. Central Wisconsin, my eyes have been open to a certain culture. When we come to biblical culture, and we, the way the Bible lays things out, we're going to be spending, now I have no idea how many parts the sermons are going to be, but we're in part one of a multiple part series, all right, of verses one through seven. But the text we're going to dig into here, it will cause us, at times to pause for a moment and ponder. And pause to the point where I would even put it as this. I was driving down the road when I first moved out here and I saw a sign that said "brats for sale. (laughs) And in my mind, I'm going, why would anybody want to eat a brat? Because it literally was spelled like brat. And I went, that's weird. All right, and then someone gave me a brat. And I said, oh, this is a sausage. And they go, no, it's not even called brat. It's called brat but we spell it like brat, but we all just know it's spelled brat because of something. And so I was sitting here going, you people are just beyond weird that you even have verbiage that we don't even understand because what we're going to do is we're going to dig into this text and this text is going to have it say things. You're going to go, wait a minute. That's not what I've heard from the culture my whole growing up years. You even may go for a minute. Wait a minute. That's not even right. I don't even know if I agree with what the text is going to say. Or you may just try to do what many have done in more of the liberal understanding of Scripture. They have taken this text here and say that's just cultural. It's just a cultural thing that was done back in that culture. Now we have evolved enough that we no longer culturally do things this way. Or you may say, Peter, listen, Peter was a Galilean fisherman. He was not educated wise. He was a man of his day. All he was doing was putting forth an archaic way of thinking that is no longer acceptable today. He was an uneducated bumpkin. He was stupid and we just, I don't like that. And so we remove the text. Instead, what I pray that we do is we must remember that 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 is part of God's unchanging word. That God influenced Peter. He inspired Peter to write these texts, not just for that day, but they carry with it from that day forward, moving all the way to this day. They carry with it the authority of God himself. So then, to disobey or disbelieve the Bible, even this passage of Scripture, is to disobey or disbelieve God. Now, I did not choose First Peter 3, 1 through 7 hundreds of days ago when I knew the whole road versus Wade thing was going to take place and all of a sudden we were going to somehow figure out what a woman is again because now that person's rights are being trampled upon and all these other things, that was God's doing. He knew this was going to happen. But we live in a day and age where our exile status we're being reminded of over and over again. Because I truly believe that the life of a believer is a continual renewing our mind of the word of God. So that when we see the culture through the lens of scripture, culture out here, the word of God right here, as we view the culture through the word of God, it will start to shape and mold our minds. And what I'm praying that we do is during this time here, as we start to break apart this text here, that we would literally try to allow ourselves to say, are there areas of my life that I have compromised to fit into the culture? Or am I going to stand alone in, these, in this thing, on what the Word of God says? Because we have all been influenced by the culture. I've only been around in Wisconsin roughly 16-something years, and I'm already being influenced by just the Wisconsin culture, let alone I've been part of the American culture for 42 years and have been influenced by that. Even to the point where as your own pastor, I'm sitting here going, okay, we're going to talk about women. And the culture immediately says, Tim, you have nothing to say about women because you're a man and you're already going to come from the aspect of saying, it's a man telling a woman what to do. And I would say, no, it's God speaking through me to you. And so what we have here, we have not been, well, put it in the positive way. We have been influenced by our culture and you will be influenced by your culture. And we're going to hear some things that Peter's going to write that may go, wait a minute, i got to think about that. So guess what you, I'm encouraging you to do? Think about it and go, are there areas in my life that are not in conformity to what God has called? So I want to talk about some waves today, and it's not because I came from the ocean, but there, we were just out in New Jersey this last week, and there was a lot of time just sitting there thinking about this since I literally worked on the sermon before, the waves of feminism that have crashed upon our culture, and these waves of feminism have not just given women struggles, they have given men struggles as well, as these waves of feminism have continually come. Now, if you're wondering, did Tim make these up, no, literally, I googled feminism and the waves of feminism, and these are the dates given to me by the history.com, all right? So it's not as if Tim came up with these on their own. These are what literally they said, and I just put a little editing around them. So the first wave, and now I want when you think about these waves, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about our culture, and as a wave comes in and it hits something, that structure that was hit, at the very least, gets soaking wet. Now it may even be moved, it may even be shaken, depending on the wave that crashes against it. But when the wave hits, both go away changed of some sort. There is no wave that hits us that doesn't change your way of thinking. So depending on even when you were raised, And the culture and the way that was crashing against you as a man or woman during this time, they're exposed. And these things have brought us about where we are today from these different waves before we even get to the text. If you want to say the front porch today, the sermon is pretty big. Wave number one. It was in the 1884 to 1920. you see there. This is where women were given the right to vote. Abolitionism came in. That's the idea of in this first wave of, of outlawing alcohol. But in these two things were disguised in the right to vote and to abolitionism. What was given there was the control of reproduction. Up until 1848 1920 there, children were what happened when you got married. You got married and you had kids, and if you, you didn't stop having kids until your body said, I'm done, and then you were done. All right, children were needed and viewed as a mainly a workforce on the farm. But now children during this time, this 1848 to 1920, children are going to be viewed as a nuisance to the progress of women. There's a Time article that shows a picture of a lady holding, well not holding, but there's 16 kids and she's holding number 17 and saying how this, this child, why we need birth control, why we need to do something about this because this woman, has her life is gone because she's having children this is where the seeds of the abortion concept were planted the ground was made ready children were a nuisance we need to do something to slow them down because children are not seen as a blessing they're seen getting in a way of progress this led to the second wave the second wave in the 60s and the 80s this destroyed the confines of the role of wife and mother the confines of the wife and mother were attacked. By the way, it's really interesting. If you want to watch, watch TV programs, and you can see when these things happened. We had the reestablishment of new gender roles. That the idea of being wife and a mother is somehow less of a thing. So we need to establish new gender roles. We need to end sexist discrimination. And this is where we taught... Women that having a career is the first thing you do, family comes second, and if that gets reversed in any way, their abortion then is the way out, because abortion is, was also made legal during this time. Um, during this time here, too, was what I would argue has shaped much of the Christian feminist movement, was where this got its movement as well, and I'll give you an example of what we mean by that. Um, I was listening to Matt Walsh on the way home the other day as we were traveling back here, and Matt Walsh at the end of his little podcast said something which I thought was interesting. Then I went, I, we need to dig into this. During this second wave here of feminism, children were no longer viewed as the cornerstone of a marriage, and I'll get to. They were viewed as the capstone of a marriage, and you go, what does that mean? So, children, when they're viewed as the cornerstone of a marriage, you get married. You have kids. If they're viewed as a capstone, you get married. You spend a lot of time getting to know one another. Go do all your fun stuff. And then when all your fun stuff is done, when all of we've established ourselves, financially established ourselves, we have gotten all the education we desire, then and only then we have children. If children are viewed as the cornerstone, that means as you get married, children are just a natural thing that happens and you will sacrifice to give them what they need, even that means you go without. But if they're the capstone, you don't sacrifice at all. You make sure you can still do your whatever, trips here and there, whatever, and nothing hinders it. And what has crept into our culture, and has crept into the American culture, and it's interesting to me as I've been mulling this over, how many times in premarital counseling I've heard from people that are about ready to get married, well, we're going to get married, we're going to get to know each other, and then we're going to have kids. And I'm going to go, you don't know each other now? Well, you, I would not be committing the rest of my life with someone to get to know one another after you get married. But what they're really saying is this, and I'm saying this in all love because I literally bought this lies well. We need to be a narcissistic for a while. When we get married, it's going to be all about us. And we're going to do all the fun things we want to do. Because once the kids come along, what happens? Your life's ruined as you know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. This also comes to the place, too, and it's seen in the Christian world movement, where children are viewed as an end of your fun and excitement, where then... Making much of yourself is more important than anything else, and so we delay marriage, we delay children, we delay, delay, delay. And I would say, for what purpose? The third wave came crashing against in the 1990s, that play, where we had then we wanted to place women in places of power. So it didn't matter why, we just need to get them in as many powerful places as we can. And in the 1990s it chose rebellion over reform we had the fight against sexual harassment yet we're fighting sexual harassment at the same time pornography goes mainstream and then liberating women liberating them into an object which leads us then no wonder to our fourth wave which is the present which after we've said we're going to fight sexual harassment on one hand We're going to put women in places of power in another hand. We're going to allow pornography to go mainstream. It's a wonder why we don't, now in wave four, the Me Too movement is under, came about, as well as in the fourth wave of feminism was an attack on masculinity. Where now, since the way to being a true woman is through power, We must then attack the power that is given to us by men, and so we will call men into a toxic way of living and then attack them. So I'll give you an example of how this plays out. We mock men that are aggressive. We mock the masculine traits of sacrifice. We mock the masculine traits of being a man that is willing to lay down his life for others. And then we wonder why in Texas we have a group of guys standing around and no one's willing to run in and we say, well, they weren't doing their job. And I look and go, well, no wonder when you castrate the men of being a man and you wonder when you call for a man and the man's not there, you wonder where we go. And so what I want to lay out for you is this is real that we're living in right now. We all are influenced by this. And this passage of scripture here that we're going to spend some time in, I really do believe it is core for us to understand. Because as these waves have crashed upon the church and impacted scores of women from the 1848 all the way to the present day and age, and it has impacted us, no matter what you say, this has impacted us. And I don't even know the depth of how it's impacted me. We need to, as R.C. Sproul said, Christians need to be intellectual nonconformists. Meaning the world is going to say, think this way. The world is going to come to you as young ladies and say, here's how you're supposed to act. You want to be a lady? It's all about this. And then the world comes to men and say, you want to be a man? You need to act this way. And what we do then is just put a Christian spin to it and make it okay. And here's the one that just is mind-boggling to me. The world says, you know what? True adulthood does not start until you're 30... So then that's when you should get married and start a child and so what we do in the church is we say this well let's just punt it back it's not until you're done with this now that you can get married and I would go why Well, oh, because we just need to come up with a, a, a time period as if these are all these things important instead of saying wait a minute what are we parenting for eternity or to fit in with the culture because if you want to fit in with the culture all Christianity seems to do is we'll just put a delay next to it and then it'll be okay and so what we see here is R.C. Sproul says Christians are intellectual nonconformists. So here's what he says, and this is what it means to be a Christian. We do not buy the values of this world. We do not buy the axioms of this world. We do not buy the evaluations and judgments of this world. We look at the world, and by the way, you need to cross out that word from. There should be a comma there. We look at the world, comma, the whole world from the perspective of God himself revealed to us through the Bible. We do not buy the world's way of thinking. Remember, Peter has told us, you are exiles in this world. You do not buy the world's way of thinking, yet what we have sadly done when it comes to men and women, when has come to roles of men and women, what we have done, we say, we will just drink with the side of our mouths some of this liquid here and think that that's somehow going to then help me out. As long as I keep somewhat of my foot in a biblical worldview, I'm going to embrace these things, and it has so revolutionized and changed our way of thinking. 1 Peter 3, 1-7 through seven. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Verses 1 and 2 is where we're going to be the majority of the time. The title of this sermon, by the way, is A Godly Wife, and so we're going to just hop right into it. Verse 1, likewise, wives. Point number 1 is likewise, wives. All right, so what is I mean, when you get a likewise, that's a connector to thoughts before that. So it's a, like a therefore or a as what was said before, so This is going to be said now. Here's what's happening to give you a little bit of a background of it. Verses 11 and 12 of 1 Peter 2. Peter's going to remind us as sojourners and exiles, abstain from things that war against the flesh. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And then he goes into this whole concept of submitting. And and who's submitting to what? Putting ourselves under subjection to the government, to slaves and masters, and all of these things are going on. But I want him to spend a little bit of time on verse 11 through 16 there, where, first Peter, where Peter here is reminding us that you are exiles journeying through a foreign land. As exiles, you will not fit in with the way the culture is doing because by definition, you're an exile. If you're not functioning as an exile, the, the answer is then you are not following after God because you are in a foreign land and you should be different. And they will call you an evildoer and you will suffer persecution. And when these things happen, they're all happening in your lives for God to get the glory. So you will stick out as, let's just be honest, as foreigners or weird exiles. There will be a weirdness to you. And not in a weird way, as in like, some of us are just weird by definition. This is weird as in like, I don't think the way you think. I don't function the way you function. I don't have the same goals. I don't have the same axioms. I don't have the same desires you do. So I look at life completely different. So here we go. Peter gives an example of godly living, and he says because we do this for the Lord's sake, we see in our text there our relationship to government. We place ourselves as free people under the governing role. Next, he says as slaves. You place yourselves as slaves obeying your master. And last but not least, we see here in chapter 3 the relationship of a wife to her unsaved husband. Notice this says even if they do not obey the word, that would be an example of not, someone who is not saved. Now, in this whole process here, I also believe the same principles apply not only to an unsaved husband, but to a husband who is saved but not living like he ought to. I would say the same principles apply across the board, even though this text here is speaking directly to a wife with a husband who is not living for the Lord or, I would, as the text says, an unsaved. Now, in this, though, Peter's not just leave us hanging. I put a, a D to this A, B, C, and D. We also have Jesus as our example. Remember, in the pastor's curse, we talked about how Jesus is our example about how we are to function in these categories. And Jesus here reminds us that he was equal with God. He's equal in personhood. He is also equal in deity. But what did Jesus do to his father? He placed himself under subjection to his father's will. So we have equal in value, equal in dignity, equal in personhood, yet different in function. And Jesus was our example there. Jesus is no less God than God the Father. Jesus is no less God than the Holy Spirit. But they have placed themselves in different roles and functions. Because remember, Jesus said, I came down not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And Jesus literally then, while he was down here on earth, was doing the will of his Father. And then on top of that, Jesus says, right when he's ready to leave, I will send the Holy Spirit. So what is the Holy Spirit doing? He is the sent one. Submitting to what the Father and the Son have sent him to do, to redeem a bride back to Jesus, all for God to get the glory. Now, each one of these plays a different function role. But what our society has tried to do, and we have seen it obliterated, has tried to say that there is no difference in function between male and female. There is no difference in any of these things. We're all just supposed to just function, and God has said no. All of these relationships are here for a reason because this is what I have told you is best and what glorifies God the most. Each one of us has a different role and a function as male and female. And as we see these things, you may say, all right, Tim, you're about ready to launch into this whole thing about wives and husbands, but you know what, Tim, I am not married, so I'm just going to check out for the next four Sundays or more depending on how long you go on. I'd like to share with you an example of why you should not. The, there was a church that we attended in South Jersey, and one day I'm sitting in there, they kind of had like a fellowship time that was this, and there was a lady that was there talking to a group of other ladies. There was some single people in there. There was just, the, you know, people gather and they talk. And this lady said this, it is really hard for me right now. I know I need to follow my husband's lead, but I, he wants to go to a different church, and I want to come here. And you know what those ladies did? They said, don't listen to him. You need to come here. Don't submit to what your husband is doing. You do your own thing. Really? I wanted to go, Where? chapter and verse for that one. Really? And this woman's like, oh, okay, I guess I do need to put my foot down every so I'm like, wait, 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 where are we going with this? Don't listen to your husband, you do your own thing. I mean, isn't that not what the serpent literally is doing? Eve, I'm going right to you. I'm going to ignore Adam's headship in this, I'm going right to you, and we're going to get that thing to happen, and what does Eve do? She hands it right to Adam, who is right with her, and into sin we go, and we look at this and go, hmm. Husbands and wives in the church are an example of Christ and the bride. And the more we function in light of what God has called us to, the more we will shape and give, I would call, even greater understanding to the next generations coming up of how the Christ interacts with his bride and how the husband interacts with the wife. Likewise, wives, he says... You are just as equal in dignity and personhood, yet you will function in a totally different role than your husband. Next, Peter talking to wives, he says, be subject to your own husbands. Point number two, subject to your own husband. If you need to underline own husband there, please do, because one of the most abused passages is does not say that women are to be subject to all men of all time, no matter what. This is what does the text say? As a husband and wife interact with one another, we have subjection. Not, again, I want to make sure we pound this, not because the wife is any lesser, but because that is the function that God has given them to do. This is no different than this. I can decide I want to rebel against the Most High and say, I want to be the one that knits life together in my own body. And it doesn't matter how much I rebel against that. God has literally given the woman the ability as the helpmate to take what I have given her and to use it to bring about a beautiful child. And even in the giving and taking of reproduction, we see the beauty of the man leading and what does the woman do as the helpmate takes what the man gives her and brings about beauty and completeness to what the man could not have done on his own. And we celebrate that and we see the function. We see the giving and the taking. We see this beautiful harmony, this beautiful, we want to call it dance being played out. But what are we going to want to do? Rebel against Almighty God and say, no, I don't like it that way. Even this word subjection, it's going to cause us in our own minds, in our own hearts, as, as these waves of feminine have told us, this is something to rebel against. This is something to go against because I am not subject to no man. I'm a woman, which literally meant taken from man. Try that, okay? It's just, the irony is so deep, all right, in these things. But as we play this stuff out, what has happened is, because we are so part of our culture, when we hear words like this, we go, what in the world is Peter talking about? Likewise, be subject to your own husband. Wives that are married to a man who does not obey the word, what does the Bible tell us to do? Do submit and be subject to them. And the background of this, example, the background of this, remember, do not divorce this from the text we read in in 1 Peter chapter 2 here near the end. The background is Jesus' example. When he was reviled, he did not what? Revile. But entrusted himself to him who judges justly. When he was wronged, what did he do? He kept his mouth shut and understood Jesus is going to handle this far better than I ever will. But what feminism has taught women today is this. The only way to be heard is through the show of power. And so the more power we have, is the more and our power, what it's going to be, is going to be our voice is going to be heard. It's interesting what we see Peter is going to say the exact opposite. Yet God's way is look to Jesus. Jesus submitted himself to the Father. He did it because, not because of any lesser status. Again, I want to make sure we're clear on this. Equal in value, yet different in role. And so when we say these things, the subjection is not because women are of any lesser of a person. I want to make clear on that. When Jesus created men and women, he literally made them both in the image of God. They are image bearers of God, yet they are to function differently in the economy that God has given us. This subjection, again, is not because a woman is any lesser of a person. As free people, we place ourselves under subjection. It is not because a woman is incapable of doing things that God has called men to do. It is because God has called us as a function to function in this manner, manner, in this mannerisms. Why? Because God has called us to live this way. God has called us to live this way. You might say, but Tim, you're saying to a woman who is living in a marriage that the husband does not obey a word, what if he is harsh to her? What if he is unkind to her? What if she is reviled? What this text is telling us to do is see the big picture. Because here's what happens. We all stand up there, and as we're doing the vows, right, for better or for worse. But when worse comes, what do we all want to do? Bail as quick as possible, right? And the moment someone comes in and they're going to go, you know, living with this guy was a whole lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And go, yeah, that's why you literally covenanted and said, for better or for worse. And guess what you're in right now? The worst part. Like, but that's what you just said you would do. That's what marriage is. Like, or they go, well, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't know it was going to be this hard. Okay. Well, guess what? It is. But God is faithful. And you know what? We will get through it one day at a time. But, but Tim, you don't understand. I signed up for the beautiful butterflies and everything else part of marriage. And I would go, well, you didn't sign up for marriage then. He signed up for a dream that is not reality because marriage is two sinners living together. Because I'll give you this, I can guarantee you each of us men have not been obedient to the word our whole married lives and have probably said things and done things to our wives where our wives are like, wow, that hurt, and that hurt even more, all right? And ways we have hurt them beyond we can imagine. And yet, what does it the text tell us? Wives, only be subject to them when things are going well, right? No. We set aside our rights. Why? To this you have been called. But why would anybody do this? I mean, Peter is telling us, wives, be, subjection to, be subjected to your own husbands. Why would anybody do this? I mean, seriously, Tim, or Peter, or even God, why would, why would anybody do this? And he tells us the reason why. There's a reason for the subjection to an unbelieving husband. Because, number one, first of all, God's ways are not yours. When your husband's being the passive, I would call it dolt, that he is being at times, and you struggle with the last part of this text here, the text is telling us to submit your ways to God. And there's a reason for this. Notice it says, even if they don't obey the word, that you may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Literally, the the subjection here is for salvation. The subjection of a wife is the tool that God will use to draw a husband to himself. Think about this for a moment. The way the wife interacts with her husband who is either unsaved or not obeying the word, that is the way that this, this, this husband will be won back either into salvation or into godly living by the way you conduct yourself. It's interesting here. The conduct of a wife is the rebuke that God will use. Think about that for a moment. The conduct of the wife is the rebuke that God will use to bring them to salvation or to bring them into spiritual, I even call it spiritual health. But yet, what is the feminist world trying to remind us of? Through the mouth is the way that you will bring your husband back. Notice what the text is saying here. Through the conduct of the wife. Alistair Begg, when he was talking about this, he says it is through the eye gate that the husband is brought to conviction, not through the mouth. It's even interesting, and I was, as I was mulling this over, I was interesting how many of us as men know through the eye gate is even what drew us to our spouse. And, but it's through the eye gate too that will cause us, the way she conducts herself will cause the man to, to bring himself into right relationship with God, either through salvation or through living properly. Yet, the struggle is this. Many times we want to use the easier method, because let's be honest with ourselves. If any of you have been married for any sort of time, you understand the massive influence the wife has on her husband. But what is the thing? The thing, instead of conducting ourselves in a way that is the great rebuke that brings about permanent change, what would is easier to do this is the continual drip of the nagging voice to finally get the husband to do whatever you wanted them to do. And guess what? The husband is doing it literally. And I'll tell you this, ladies, if you don't understand this, I'll tell you this. When, and Allison and I have had this conversation enough. When Allison nags me enough, I will do it. But you know what I am doing while I'm doing it? It is the biggest, you be quiet it is not because I love her. It is not because anything else is because I want to shut the dripping faucet off. And so she thinks she's got the job done. But the job has only gotten done because of the continual nonstop nagging over and over and over again. And we just sit there and go, isn't that a wonderful marriage? And you go, that's not a marriage at all. That's just the squeaky wheel getting the grease. And it's not because I like the squeaking wheel. Is because I just don't want to hear the grease. I mean, I don't want to hear the squeak going on, so I'll just grease the wheel so we're good to go. And we think that that's marriage. That's not marriage. But we think that that's somehow how we can do it. And the crazy part is, and I can give if you ever want to hear an example of, uh, Allison one time goes, in our own marriage, I actually tried to allow my conduct to do this. And it actually worked. And Tim brought, came all the way around to the side. I thought she said, the peace that we had after that, because there was a decision we had to make in the family. I was not there yet. She was. And she didn't say anything. Which was even the worst part about that, because it's like, I'm, I'm waiting, you know? Nothing was there. And the Holy Spirit kept working on me, and working on me, and working on me, until I finally came back and said, all right, Allison, I think we should do this. And so then when the tough times came in those situations, I couldn't complain and go, well... I only am in this because you drug me into it." She had waited. Now that was brutal, but I'll tell you what, the tool shed that God took me out to was far more lasting than my wife's continual going at. But now she could say, but it's gonna take forever to get done. You don't understand, God, how stubborn He is. You don't understand about this. You don't understand about that. And you know what? If I wait and just conduct myself in this way, it's not going to work. All right, let's go back to point number one. To disobey or disbelieve the Bible is to disobey or disbelieve God. What you are saying there is, no, I know how to do this better. And what has feminism said? The only way to get a man to change is through what? Rebellion, rebellion, rebellion. If we want to get men to change, what do we have to do? Power, rebel. And you're going to go, uh, Peter says here, when when they see your respectful and pure conduct, so what's going to change them? The exact opposite of what the world has been trying to shove down your throats, ladies, of how to make a difference in this world. Respect. What is respectful? The concept there is do not belittle them, but honor them. We talked about this before. This is not the idea of sitting there and going, when you're you're respecting them, you are honoring them for who they are and what they have done. I'll give you an example in this. Again, we look at these things and go, there are times as a a man, and we know this, we know this, again, all over the place, a, a wife saying the proper word of encouragement or whatever at those moments will encourage the husband, the way she conducts herself, the way she interacts with them. This does not mean that the wife does not say anything. But in her conduct, her conduct is saying far more than what her words will say. Because I want to be sure, you're, it says, even without a word, by the conduct of their wives. They're still saying that wives and husbands will talk to one another. But the, if you want to call it the catalyst of change, is through the actions of the individual to back up what they are saying. So I'll give you an example of this. And we've seen this happen wives you have a huge influence on your husband what you praise he will do more of think about that for a moment what you praise he will do more of and if you don't believe me because here's something i have been told very rarely in any of these things does a wife come into a let's say a gym a girl come into a gymnasium a single girl and say you know what that guy can shoot three-pointers Marry him. I'm going to marry him. Because that skill right there is going to put food on the table and provide for a family. But what does every boy think as soon as a young lady that has caught his eye come into the gym? Watch how I put it, this round ball in the hoop from really far away. That will impress her. And if she just, guess what he's going to do? He's going to shoot three-pointers until the Day is dawn until he sits there and goes, why? Because he wants the approval of his spouse. And so instead of using that as a negative thing that a spouse can do, what is Peter telling us? Use it to the advantage to bring about godly change in the way you conduct yourself. Praise what is good. Encourage them into these things. And then, not only that, it says, by your pure conduct. This is not slandering or deceit but your conduct is one that is godly. Because, let's be honest, when a husband is not following after God, when a husband is not saved, there is much to slander and there is much to ridicule. But your conduct must be that is above reproach. Because the sinful response... To this, when the husband is not obeying the word and the husband is not doing this thing, the sinful response is, I will make life as miserable as possible until I get what I want. Rebecca Merkel once said this, a wife has an enormous influence over her husband. You put a bunch of ninnies in that position, the position of a wife, the husbands are hosed. When you have a bunch of ladies who do not understand the massive influence they have on their spouse and how that they can create an atmosphere in the home where godliness and love and joy come about, if you put a bunch of ninnies in that position that are only thinking that they are continually wronged and their life would be just better if it was, wasn't for him, the men are hosed. It's interesting here. When we read verses 1 through 7, how many verses are talking to what? Six. There's one talking to a husband. Interesting. And I would say, why? Because Peter is understanding that great, enormous influence that a wife has been placed, that has been placed in the hands of a woman. I want to that to sink in for a second, because what God gives us as a gift, we can use it in a horrible way. What God gives us as a, as a treasure, to treasure, we can get upset about it and say, "Well, that's not where I want to be. That's not the hand that I want to be given." because ladies your response to your husband exposes your walk with god your response to your husband exposes your walk with god now i want to be clear on this men we'll get to you don't worry about that just again if you're worried about that that shows why we needed this passage to begin with but men we will get to us but here's the problem we live in a day and age where it's literally, it is is beyond mind-boggling to me that we live in a day and age here where you're literally hearing arguments about womanhood and about what makes someone a woman is the ability to slaughter an unborn child and that makes you somehow a woman and you sit there and go, what in the world are we dealing with? Where are we? Have We've gotten so confused on that topic that we've literally said, men, you have nothing to say about this topic, even though you're going to go like you played a pretty big role in this whole process going because nobody's getting pregnant without you. And now all of a sudden we've got so confused that we literally are in a world of just, as I would call it, confusion beyond confusion where one minute we're not going to define a woman and the next minute we're taking away the undefined individual's rights. And you're going to go, well, what, what are we doing here? And so then we can enter into this whole conversation here. And as we start to hear verbiage being said from one side or the other, what I really want you to do over these next two to three weeks is listen to both sides fully. Listen to what they're saying. Look at their worldview and start to say, wait a minute. Some of that same verbiage is being spoken by the church. Some of that same verbiage is being shared by us, like to give you an example, someone said, "Oh, you started having kids at an early age. Ooh, what? Really? W- what were you? When is the proper time to have them? I don't know. but it was just this is what we say, right? You don't want to have kids too young. Four? Well, because you won't have yourself as perfectly put together financially. And I'll go, four? Well, your life here on earth will not be as good as it could be. And I'll go, exile, living? Uh, last time I checked, that's what we were called to be? But what happens is we buy this lie, and it, is, it embraced us that, remember, the whole capstone versus cornerstone thing. We have bought all of that, and it just comes flying into text here like this. We're going to go, so what you're trying to tell me, Tim, is this. There's a way of living that brings honor and glory to God, and there's a way of living that defames His name. And I would say, yes, there is. But what's in front of us right now is because these waves have crashed us. We don't even know how soaking wet we really are. And it is hard for us. As ladies, depending on the mother that you grew up with, her godly worldview or lack thereof godly worldview, you are continually being impressed or having to change this way of thinking. Because what we have made is womanhood to be something that is not biblical, and we have allowed men to be destroyed of what masculinity is. And even coming to these things as we say, wives and husbands, I'm sitting here going, I think that could be its own sermon of what does it mean to this? Because here's what's happening. If we don't understand our own roles, how do we even get to the point of interacting with one another? And so how does a wife conduct herself this way? Because I can immediately in my mind as I go through this passage here, when we start saying that a wife, the way you respond to your husband, expose your walk with God, immediately some people in their mind are going, Tim, are you trying to say we need to go back to leave it to Beaver where I stay at home and I'm, you know, tied to the kitchen and all these other things. Are you saying that? I'm going to go, if you think that, you did not read the text. But those are pictures that go into our minds. And if you're not careful, we can take all of those things and bring that right into our, our day and age here. And we sit here and go, what does that even look like? Because I have not even gotten to the text in verse 6, where so Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. I mean, if that doesn't get your hair sticking up. Let's be honest, ladies. I can guarantee you, i have t- joking. I said to Allison, as we get closer to this, if you could refer to me as Lord a couple of times... <laughs> You know, and she's like, I don't think I'm going to do that. And I said, well, Sarah did, right? And so, but you see, but you see, even in that joking back and forth, what do you see? You see these, these things rising to our mind going, uh, uh-uh, uh, uh, I'm not saying that. I'm not going to live that way. I'm going to go, well, again, to disobey or disbelieve the Bible is to what? Disobey or disbelieve God. And so what we're saying here is, God has something to teach us here, right? And so as we work through this, what I want us to try to do is this. As much as we can to the world, say, enough. And let's allow our minds to be renewed by the word of God, to not listen to the, this crazy worldview that is being pumped if you haven't understood that feminism has not helped women. Right, we need to make sure we're clear on that. Even though there's right to votes and some of these other things that brought about that, in that wave that came was a lot of also trash and muck that has destroyed womanhood. And so it is time, if we can, to say, Lord, help us start back from the beginning and work our way up through. That same thing, too, for guys. We'll get to verse 7, and we are, no, we are not on the hook, off the hook either. God is speaking to us in a way. But it is hard because we live in a pagan world, but we live as exiles. So wrapping it up today, the role of a godly wife is to reflect Jesus. It's about as simple as it can be said. The role of a godly wife is to reflect him. When he was reviled, he did not revile. When he suffered, he committed himself to God. So for those of you, though, I want to speak to this real quick. Though, For those of you who are in a marriage that is far, far from being God-honoring, ladies, your goal and your role in this is to conduct yourselves in a way that is honoring and glorifying to God. God will judge your spouse. You do not need to be the one who doesn't. Your goal is to pray for Him, to submit to Him. And in doing so, As God's word says in other places, you will put coals of burning fire on his head, causing him, as this text tells us, there's a promise in this, if you do these things, this is what the catalyst that God had said could be used to bring him to salvation. Do you trust God enough? It's really at the root of it. Do I trust him enough, God enough, that God will be the one to bring him around. Because I can guarantee you, for the few times in our lives that we have done this somewhat okay, that has brought true, lasting change, because now that Alice and I have been together for 20 years, she knows how she can get me to do something to the point where I'm even thinking I'm doing it because I want to. Because she has that much influence. And so let's be honest. Is she doing that for the glory and honor of God? Or is she doing that just so she can get what she wants? No. I know there's been a lot said today. The biggest thing that I want you to take home is this, for men and women. Take your life, lay it across the life of Christ, and ask God, will you conform me to more of the image of your son? Let's pray. Dear Dearly Father, There were so many things that needed to be said, so many things that were left unsaid. May your Holy Spirit take these truths and sink them deep into our lives. Father, forgive us for the ways that we have allowed the evil of this culture to influence our way of thinking, even to the point where we think it's Christianity. Awaken us, a passion for the truth. And waken us, a passion for godly living. Dearly Father, we live in a world of, of sin, and we know that there will be heartache, and we know that there will be great struggle. But dearly Father, help us at as much as possible to live at peace with all men, knowing that, as your word said, because of sin, divorce will happen. Because of these things, stress and stress, Trials will take place, and trials will take place in the marriage. But dearly Father, may we, as much as possible, live our lives to the glory and honor of you and you alone. May we be content with the spouse that you have given us, knowing that there is no ideal place except for the place you have put us. So may we learn how to flourish in the situation that you've given us. We ask these things in your Son's name we pray. Amen. If you could stand with us as we sing.